sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we're talking about the reality of student loan debt in the U.S. as uh, people prepare for a reported pending announcement from Joe Biden on just that issue. Also going to be talking about a politics inside Brazil as that country head towards its presidential election. Also going to be talking about how the Biden White House is uh, crafting a policy that will uh, basically make it to where the average person will have to shoulder the cost of COVID treatment. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, just as I suspected, President Joe Biden is announcing that he'll approve the cancellation of $10,000 in federal student loan debt. I guess he is expecting some kind of returns on his efforts in the midterm elections. But I seem to recall his campaign promise was to, quote, forgive all undergraduate tuition related federal student debt from two and four year public colleges and universities and private historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs and minority serving institutions, MSIs, for debt holders earning up to one hundred twenty five thousand dollars, end quote. That's directly from the Biden-Harris campaign website, as confirmed by PolitiFact.com and their Biden promise tracker, which you should definitely check out, by the way. It's depressing. But somehow, since Biden-Harris won the White House, that promise has been whittled down to Biden agreeing with Senator Elizabeth Warren on forgiving just $10,000 in student loans. He tweeted his support for this idea on March 22, 2020, saying, quote, we should forgive a minimum of $10,000 per person on federal student loans, as proposed by Senator Warren and colleagues. Young people and other student debt holders bore the brunt of the last crisis. It shouldn't happen again, end quote. But that's not what he promised when they campaigned. Publications like Money.com went so far as to say that Biden had only ever promised to knock $10,000 off student loan debt for certain borrowers, and they cited several instances before and after the election when he mentioned that amount as proof that he never promised to actually cancel all student loan debt, except that on his campaign website, he absolutely did. He and Harris totally said, forgive all undergraduate tuition-related federal student debt, and you can't redefine what all means to claim Biden didn't make that campaign promise like the administration tried to redefine what recession means to claim that we're not in one. But as Republicans and Democrats are crying about canceling any student loan debt because that's letting bad borrowers off the hook, you know, the Biden administration is not having a problem sending more money to Ukraine as he simultaneously announced another $3 billion will be sent in weapons and equipment to the country. Even though CBS News aired a recent documentary in which the founder of pro-Ukraine nonprofit Blue Yellow, Jonas Oman, said in late April that only around 30 percent of aid was reaching the front lines in Ukraine. 
But CBS News had to buckle under political pressure to remove the offending portion of the documentary, publicly apologize for saying not nice things about the proxy war in Ukraine, and update the documentary with more favorable information since then. But the issue of the lack of tracking of the massive influx of weapons into the country is highlighted by the claims of illegal sales of some of the hardware on the dark web. And even though U.S. officials have been scoffing at the idea that the billions of dollars worth of weaponry is being sold on the black market, you know there's no authority in Ukraine making sure everything delivered ends up where it's supposed to be, especially since Ukraine is not winning the war anyway. Nonetheless, Biden is willing to throw another $3 billion away in Ukraine with no oversight and into a losing effort while he throws crumbs at crushing student loan debt in this country. But let's keep in mind, y'all, that Joseph Biden is the guy who's responsible for student loan debt being the nearly inescapable debt trap that it is today, since it was his bill, the Higher Education Act of 1976, that excluded student loans from being eligible eligible to be discharged in bankruptcy. Joe Biden created this student loan debt trap to favor the student loan companies, folks. He sure is not going to be the one to fix it. But for Biden and the Democrats and too many liberal voters my age and older, this paltry $10,000 student loan forgiveness is seen as a win, and they'll claim it's a big one, and they'll further turn on the millennial and Gen Z voters who are rightfully confronting them with what was promised as opposed to what is being delivered. They'll tell those kids to shut up and be grateful that Biden did anything and pay the rest of those crushing student loans off like we did by working two, maybe three jobs and not buying Starbucks and not eating out every day for lunch while this administration throws another $3 billion away in Ukraine. And I hope those young, righteously and rightfully angry millennial and Gen Z voters and hopefully more of us Gen Xers throw those votes in those duplicitous liberals faces come November 22 and again in 2024, because being browbeaten into voting for someone who was never a friend to the working class and poor to save a crumbling system from its own ineptitude and arrogance is one thing. But being gaslit by those same people into accepting what is quite literally a broken campaign promise, as if it's a gift we should be grateful for, that's a whole nother insult altogether. Follow Lukman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Dr. Linwood Tawheed, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Dr. Tawheed, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. 
Absolutely. And Dr. Tauhid, it's being reported that U.S. President Joe Biden may be set to announce his student loan forgiveness plan here soon. He has not made any formal announcements just yet. But reports are saying that uh, uh, the uh, a number that was settled on was basically a plan to forgive about $10,000 of student debt for borrowers who make under $125,000 a year. Now, uh, you know, there are some progressives that are already, you know, criticizing this as they were pushing for uh, $50,000 in uh, student loan forgiveness, with many people pointing out that the average federal student loan debt is about $37,667. This is according to the Education Data Initiative. And so although this uh, uh, is not sort of in stone yet, Dr. Tauhid, I'm just sort of wondering what you're making of uh, the prospect of a $10,000 worth of a student debt forgiveness, uh, if you think it will make much of an impact for people, or how do you see that sort of thing playing out? Well, $10,000 of, of student loan forgiveness uh, will, will forgive all of the student loans for about 30% of of borrowers, right? The other the other seventy percent will still continue to have to have loans to repay. Uh, with the average owed at about thirty seven thousand, then that average uh, comes down to uh, twenty seven thousand, which which is uh, still a significant loan. And and there is of course a a disparity in this loan along along racial lines and in, in the amount of borrowing along racial lines with African-Americans and Hispanics having a larger student loan ratio to their income. Uh, that is, um, uh, in, in terms of their ability to pay, since this is an in- income-based payment, uh, African-American and Hispanic borrowers have a more difficult time paying back their loans because income is lower. And so it will it will do well for some. It'll it'll eliminate um, all of their uh, indebtedness, but for the majority, uh, and particularly for blacks and, and Hispanic uh, borrowers, it will do something, but not very much. And then, Doctor Tauhe, the fact that you know this ten thousand uh, dollars puts a dent, I guess you will, in the principal balance of uh, the uh, debt load that people owe when they owe more than ten thousand dollars. There is the issue of interest that continues to accrue. And what does this uh, ten thousand dollars do to the interest that people still owe on the remaining balance of their loans? Well, the the amount, the ten thousand dollar amount, will will include principal and interest. But for example, if someone borrowed five thousand, and then over the years that five thousand, because of interest, uh, ballooned up to ten thousand, then that ten thousand payment, ten thousand dollar payment, will will eliminate both the principal and the interest. Uh, that that would be a very low uh, uh, level of borrowing. Uh, most most folks who owe that thirty seven thousand, the average, uh, didn't didn't borrow thirty seven thousand. That's not the principal. That's uh, that's principal plus interest. And so, for those who still have a loan, that interest payment will still accrue. It will still continue. And uh, so, so the the, the amount to ten thousand dollar amount covers principal and interest, but it but it doesn't doesn't defer or eliminate interest for those who will still have debt. 
Yeah, now, someone you could say more, Dr. Tawheed, about the uh, racialized nature of uh, uh, student loans and how that factors into this broader issue. Well, interestingly enough, the NAACP has come out very strongly in support of at least a $50,000 uh, forgiveness uh, or more, that is, up to the, including the, uh, the total amount of the, of the debt. And and in their numbers, they indicate that the that that average uh, owed debt at thirty seven thousand is greater than the average African American owned uh, borrower's income, and and so uh, in for 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 African Americans, uh, they own they owe more than they than their income. And so when we look at something like a debt-to-income ratio, which is used to, for example, qualify someone to buy a home or a car or, or credit in general, we find that African Americans are, are in a sense, underwater in, in, in that they, they, um, their debt-to-income ratio is that debt is higher than income and they do not qualify for, for credit, for home ownership or, or, or for borrowing. That is, that is one effect of having a uh, higher debt uh, and a lower income that, that plays out not just uh, uh, momentarily, uh, being unable to buy a home and to accrue uh, equity and build wealth in that home also has some very serious downstream effects, including the, the, the effect of not being able to finance your child's education uh, when, and when they get to college or college age, not being able to finance their education because you don't have a home that you built equity in. So, so this debt uh, issue issue for for those who have low income, uh, even even after having attended some college, maybe not finishing, is is very serious. And it sounds to me like that is instead of higher education being the pathway to building generational wealth, higher education has turned into the pathway to building generational debt for some people in this country, Dr. Tawheed. Yeah, well, one of the things that we have to do, um, uh, uh, in addition to cancel all student debt, that's my, my position, is to uh, begin to ratchet down the increases in in college education in general. Um, there was a time when no one really had to, to borrow anything of significance to, to to go to school or have a college education at good colleges around the country. Uh, so the, the the tremendous increase in uh, in uh, college tuition much much greater than the than the cost of inflation. Uh, we ha- we uh, we have to get that under control, if uh, if we, uh, unless we forgive this debt, and then we we end up with another generation in another uh, round of debt, and and, and the same socio economic situation uh, will affect them. And what you're saying, Doctor Tawheed, also makes me wonder what what are the social impacts of this kind of uh, generational debt that we're uh, uh, discussing. So like, well, what are the ripple effects of uh, uh, being saddled with this kind of debt uh, throughout the years? Well, uh, the uh, part of the ripple effects is that uh, this, uh, I mentioned it depresses home ownership uh, rates. Uh, right now, African-Americans uh, own uh, 43% of African-American households are, are, are own their homes 
whereas uh, 73% of white households own their homes. And so there's a 30-point difference, uh, a huge difference, almost double, in terms of whites owning homes as opposed to blacks owning homes. This, uh, this debt situation exacerbates that because it, it makes it impossible for, for persons to actually qualify for a mortgage with their, their debt-to-income ratio. It also suppresses marriage rates. You, you, you ask persons, particularly millennials, and, and uh, about, um, about getting married, and they are not wanting to get married and to bring their debt into their marriage, therefore uh, making it uh, more difficult for their, for their partners and them to, to, to move forward. So, so they're not getting married. Uh, there's uh, those who are going into retirement with debt have to still pay off their debt in retirement, and so retirement income is is less than it than it should be, making again hardship. Uh, there's also an, an effect on on business formation. Uh, many people are, are going to borrow to start businesses, but if your if your credit score, if your debt to income ratio is low, you're not able to borrow to start a business, and so. Uh, th- th- there are uh, there are these immediate socioeconomic effects that then extend out to the next generation of not being able to 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 borrow money or to su- uh, support them as as your your children and grandchildren go through school as well because you, you don't have a business that you can borrow from or you don't have home equity that you can borrow from. And so this is a cycle and it, and it, in each generation it gets worse. This is a vicious vicious cycle. And also, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, uh, Dr. Tawheed, about how you feel all student debt should be canceled. And I quite agree. That is certainly my position as well. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, like from a political standpoint, why is there such an aversion to student loan debt? I mean, it is clearly something that is impacting millions of people uh, across this country. And the idea of student loan forgiveness is broadly popular. So why is there such a hesitation on uh, the part of those in power to really take that kind of drastic step? Well, the the, the pushback on student loan fi- uh, forgiveness is coming, obviously, from finance. It's coming from, from banks. Um, uh, most of the student loan, the, of $1.7 trillion of student loan, is, is federally backed. Uh, federally, federally secured, and so forgiveness doesn't mean that the you know the, the the holders of the of the of the note don't get paid. They get paid, but but uh, a smaller part, uh, about twenty five percent of that one point seven trillion is private um, uh, loans. Uh, those loans are at higher interest rates, and uh, those those companies don't want to lose those higher interest rates, even if. Forgiveness means they get paid for their for for the uh, the, uh, the size of the note. Now, it uh, it eliminates future interest payments for them, and and so they're pushing back on that. Yeah, you know, and I I have to ask in. In addressing this issue that is just, you know, the Democrats are going to celebrate this as if, you know, this is a big uh, a win for the Democratic Party. And obviously this is done um, in uh, anticipation of uh, hopefully a big return in the midterms. So this is clearly a political ploy and it is definitely not the campaign promise that the Biden-Harris campaign uh, uh, offered to the people as one of the reasons why people should vote for them uh, in 2020 in the first place. So, 
you know, now that it's clear that Biden is not going to keep his promise to cancel all student loan debt because that was the promise. And this is all we're clearly going to get from the Biden administration. What do you see as the organizing efforts that people who are the most impacted by the insufficiency of this policy, what do our organizing efforts need to be around uh, to stop this from happening again and to actually get this issue addressed in the next political cycle? Well, as I mentioned, the NAACP has come out very strongly for 50,000 plus of forgiveness. Uh, they are, a, uh, I guess, the, the oldest uh, civil rights organization uh, in, in the country, certainly one of the strongest. And, and other civil rights and human rights organizations Need to join that that their their movement for that 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 in my opinion brings the elites in the black community into into the struggle uh, and 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 that's important uh, but of course it also means needs to, to be done at the grassroots level um, uh, other organizations that are that are not a part of the elites needs need to join with the elites. In this case, it's not often we, 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 we say we, you know, that that should happen uh, because many times the elites and the grassroots are on opposite sides. But in this case, they're all on the same side. And it should be very, made very clear to those in the Democratic Party that uh, that the Democrats are that the, that the current corporate Democrats are not going to get the support from uh, the grassroots or the black elite. If they do not uh, do something that is that is beneficial, substantially beneficial, and ten thousand dollars of forgiveness is not is not bad. So, so there, this needs to be a rallying cry for the entire black community, uh, grassroots and, and elites, to to push uh, to, to make the Democrats understand that uh, we're we're not simply going to vote for them if um, if if they don't uh, do something of benefit. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Tawheed, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about politics inside Brazil as that country heads towards its next election. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Brian Meir, co-editor of Brazil Wire and the author of Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street and the New Imperialism in Brazil. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Brian, Brazil will be holding its next election, I believe, in little over a month from now, with polls showing that a former president, Lula da Silva, is uh, leading a far right current president, Jair Bolsonaro, who has, uh, you know, over the last few months sort of been preemptively trying to, you know, undermine uh, faith in the next election and even seems to be threatening a kind of uh, attack. Uh, on uh, the government should uh, Lula actually be elected. And it's uh, also being reported that 
uh, Brazil uh, is uh, searching for Brazil police, that is, are on the lookout for uh, several businessmen within the country who have expressed support for an actual coup uh, should Lula be elected. And I was hoping you could help us understand uh, uh, just what's happening here and how it factors into Brazil's uh, political situation at this point. Okay, first of all, Lula's leading in double digits in all the polls, right? Uh, and many are saying he could take the election in the first round. <clears throat> in 2018, Bolsonaro rose to power on the top of a bunch of dirty social media tricks that were against the law in Brazil, using Cambridge Analytica-style tactics to, uh, to target specific demographics, you know, with total disinformation about leftists. One example would be, you know, the government, if Fernando Haddad, the Workers' Party candidate, was elected, the government would create a panel to decide the gender of all children at age five. And from there, it gets worse. I won't even mention the worst stuff, right? So it took about three years for the electoral courts to analyze all of the information. And they ruled that, yes, Bolsonaro and his cronies had indeed broken the law uh, during the election campaign, but that it was too late and possibly they didn't feel they were strong enough to remove him from office, although there was enough evidence to make that happen. Instead, one of the judges, Supreme Court Minister Alexander G. Moraes, he swore last October that this year nobody would be able to get away with it because during the course of all the proceedings, they'd learned how to identify quickly these kinds of toxic messages on social media and quickly identify who was financing them. Okay, so the first, so he was sworn in as president of the electoral, the superior electoral court last Tuesday. The first day he was sworn in, he ordered Bolsonaro's former human rights minister, Damaris Alves, to remove from her social media accounts four videos she was showing that were doctored to make it appear that um, Lula had been handing out pamphlets to children to teach them how to smoke crack when he was president. You know, the, the level of sophistication is high. These are sophisticated doctored videos and things. So um, he threatened to cancel candidacies and everything. And so yesterday, one week into his, um, his reign as president of the court, he ordered search and seizure operations at the houses. They, they know where these businessmen are, at the houses of eight of the wealthiest elites in Brazil. Um, seized hard drives, seized smartphones, gave the federal police 15 days to decipher all the cryptid, you know, cryptified uh, information on them, under the suspicion that they've been plotting in Telegram to finance an auto coup for Jair Bolsonaro if he loses the election on October 2nd. And so the next step is possible, possible jail time for them, four to eight years. I don't know how far he's going with it, but he's frozen all of their bank accounts and frozen all of their social media accounts. So this is sending a strong message that, you know, Bolsonaro and his, you know, his cronies, including international far right actors like Steve Bannon, who gave them a lot of guidance four years ago, are not going to be able to get away with the same illegal tactics that they used four years ago. 
Yeah, and even uh, hours after uh, the search uh, was carried out for the eight entrepreneurs uh, that was ordered by the Supreme Court, the business group Esfera organized a VIP lunch in Sao Paulo with Bolsonaro. Uh, and what what did Bolsonaro say at this uh, uh, lunch in relation to this potential coup d'etat? Well, he's trying to distance himself from these people, which is a little bit hard because one of the guys who had the search and seizure and has his assets frozen is this guy named Luciano Havan. He's one of Brazil's richest men. He only dresses in green and yellow, the patriotic colors of the Brazilian flag. He released a video to his thousands of employees at his stupid um, department stores that have mini statues of the Statue of Liberty in front of them spread out through small towns across Brazil saying that he would fire anyone who didn't vote for Bolsonaro in 2018. So he's very close to Bolsonaro. Um, and Bolsonaro is trying to now saying, well, they're going to have to, if they've done any crimes, they're going to have to pay for them. At the same time, his followers, his, you know, his, his son Carlos's bot army and all of this are trying to portray this as a kind of like libertarian U.S. libertarian defense of free speech. Like, they were only talking about over financing the overthrow of the government. That's a free speech issue. But no, it's not really. You know, like, neither is assault. <laughs> Threatening to kill someone's not really a free speech issue either, right? According to, at least according to law in Brazil. <laughs> so, no, you can't, you can't plot for, to overthrow the government to commit treason, and then it's just treated like free speech. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, and I just feel like almost in so many ways, um, Bolsonaro is telegraphing some kind of attack or some kind of action if the election doesn't go his way. I mean, he uh, was recently quoted uh, uh, by Reuters saying that he would respect the results of the election uh, uh, that's coming up if it was, quote, clean and transparent, which obviously means if he wins, you know what I mean? And, you know, he's uh, uh, previously, I believe, uh, attacked like the electronic voting system and all these sorts of things, which makes me wonder, I mean, if if Bolsonaro were to do something like that, right, what kind of support, and this is a broad question, but what kind of support would he have amongst sort of the, the masses of uh, Brazilian people? I mean, if these uh, polls are any indication, I mean, it seems that uh, it would basically be, uh, you know, uh, uh, an effort of obviously Bolsonaro, his aides and, and some of the most far right elements within Brazil. But would there be a real appetite for that amongst uh, most of the people in Brazil or from your perspective? Well, right now, Bolsonaro has about 30% of the support of the Brazilian voters, but uh, half of them, studies have been done showing about half of them are absolute fanatics. And remember, in the 1920s, Hitler only had about 30% support uh, for a long time. Um, so some of his followers would definitely, you know, half at least would be totally on board with something like this. But the big question is the military. If the military gets on board with it, then we've got a real problem. Unfortunately, he's quadrupled all the salaries of top military brass in the last year. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a, a lot of military, his, his vice presidential running mate, 
he's switched he's switching VPs now is a more powerful general than the last one his current vice president Braga Neto who is in charge of the Rio de Janeiro military operation during Marielle Franco's murder so uh, and he's probably on board with this as well the issue is though that Lula has very cleverly this is a very complicated election it's not a normal election people who treat it like a normal election are just out of their minds I think in my opinion um He's very cleverly picked a former rival as vice president candidate. And that opened up the governor's position for Fernando Haddad from PT, for the Workers' Party to take the government, state government, in the largest and richest state in Brazil for the first time ever. And the political protege of Geraldo Alckmin, his vice president candidate, is none other than Alexandre de Moraes, the president of the Electoral Court and Supreme Court Justice during this election. So it was was like a real kind of master chess move. And him putting this more conservative guy on the ticket with him, like he did in 2002 as well, he picked a conservative as his running mate. So it's hard to take power in a country with 212 million people. Um, uh, this has got support of uh, some of the business elites on board, including some very powerful forces in the, the business elites. The, the Federation of Industry of the State of Sao Paulo, which is the industrial capital of Brazil, he's convinced them that the reason all the factories closed down and they're all losing money is because of Bolsonaro's economic policies. And he's pr- promising to reindustrialize Brazil. So all these big industrialists are on board with him now, and they're powerful. You know, so they've got some sway among them with the military brass as well. So it's it's really hard to say how it's going to play out right now. But this move by the electoral court was huge, you know, because he's basically just like paralyzed funding of the Bolsonaro campaign's social media tactics. Yeah. And uh, there was something I wanted to ask about uh, specifically, Brian, with, uh, you know, Lula was recently talking about Venezuela and referred to, you know, Juan Guaido as an imposter and things like that. And so uh, in considering that and even looking at the the opening up of relations between um, Venezuela and Colombia now under the new administration of uh, Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez, it just makes me wonder what do you see as the impacts for Latin America, uh, which has seen a number of progressive and left administrations come into power here recently? So what does a Lula presidency mean for the region within that context? It would be huge. I mean, I was talking with Camila Escalante this morning and she was just telling me, you know, every a lot of people in the U.S. don't realize how big Brazil is. Right. They think, you know. Bolivia has half the population of Brazil's largest city, Sao Paulo. You know, so it it really, it contains like half of the population of Latin America, Brazil, you know. And so it would be really important to have someone who's not just relentlessly sucking up to the United States, like Jair Bolsonaro, uh, replaced by someone who supports the concept of sovereignty, someone who worked with Hugo Chavez in Cancun in 2003 to block the free trade agreement of the Americas, which was the kind of attempt to push through a NAFTA in the rest of Latin America. You know, someone who believes in, in BRICS and, and a multilateral, multipolar world. That would be huge, you know. And uh, at this point, 
I think the U.S. government, despite all of the issues they have with those things, sees him as the best option because they don't want to put, you know, Bannon's boy back in power for four years. So I feel like they're probably going to step back a little bit in this election and possibly try to undermine a, a Lula presidency if it happens, like they tried to do in his first term in 2000. And, and like they, they did through Lava Jato later with Dilma and, and, and Lula. So I think at this point, they, the most important thing is to not have a, a staunch ally of Steve Bannon, you know, running things in, in Brazil right now for the Democratic Party. Yeah, and I do wonder, you know, since the business class is clearly uh, supportive of, uh, you know, the status quo, even if uh, Bolsonaro is not uh, at the head of it, I wonder how his overtures toward uh, the working class and the poor in the country have uh, played into his poll numbers. Has that helped him any or have the people largely uh, not forgotten Bolsonaro? Uh, brutality toward them and have continued to uh, support uh, Lula. Yeah, right now, um, even though Bolsonaro illegally raised welfare checks by 50% with this very like patronizing idea that was repeated by a bunch of bourgeois journalists that if the poor got a little more handouts, they would switch parties, you know? All the polls taken after these, this increase in welfare, temporary welfare checks pushed through show no change at all among the poor. They're still over two to one in favor of Lula. It's his largest demographic, 54 to 23 percent. That's how he's polling with people making less than two minimum, two times the minimum wage. So people, it's economic. It's not just the brutality and the brutality is part of it. But the thing is, the brutality is mostly related to the state governors you know the the workers party have tried to outlaw the military police three times and it was always blocked by conservative coalition partners in congress but the people in charge of the police are the governors you know so and you have huge variations from state to state in terms of police violence and rio is obviously by far the worst but but it's 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 economic and that and lula's also convinced a lot of um economic elites that it's good to have, for example, a strong manufacturing sector, that reindustrialization can help, that if people have higher wages, they can buy more consumer products, and that that's good for the economy in general. I mean, there's a lot of arguments you could make for why, you know, raising minimum salary improves the, econ the economy in general, which is what happened during his eight consecutive above inflation min minimum salary hikes. So the, the business elites are kind of split on, on Lula, uh, but there's enough behind him right now that um, it hopefully will defer or, or prevent a kind of military, you know, auto coup if and when Bolsonaro loses the election. Yeah, and another thing this makes me think about, Brian, is the fact that the whole case, that whole situation that led to Lula's imprisonment, which was very obviously a, a political move to, to keep him from, you know, being out and enjoying, you know, his uh, uh, popularity amongst um, uh, the people there, you know, perhaps seeing him return to power. Um, I just feel like everything, I just feel like that, that whole issue has completely fallen apart and been thoroughly exposed. I mean, it was pretty transparent to begin with, but it just seems like a lot of that has been 
so transparently shown to be uh, uh, the kind of uh, political maneuver that it always seemed to be. You know what I mean? And I mean, even though it certainly sort of took uh, uh, Lula out of the game for a moment, I mean, since his release and when we see how well he's doing, again, looking at the polls and sort of the, the broad popularity there, I mean, it's just clear that the that the absurdity of that whole situation just, you know, is particularly glaring. Yeah, let's remember he was arrested during an election year when he was leading all polls with more support than all other candidates combined. And even behind bars for three months after he was illegally blocked from communicating with anyone in the press, even though like serial killers can talk to people in the press when they're in jail, even then he was still leading the polls with more with, with but in double digits with more support than all other candidates combined. Bolsonaro when Lula was still trying to run for president six weeks, eight weeks before the election, Bolsonaro was still pulling under 20%. You know, the only reason he's in power is because they removed Lula from the elections. And the person responsible for that, Sergio Moro, immediately took a cabinet position in Bolsonaro's government. And he's under investigation for that now, for conflict of interest. And everyone involved in that whole, you know, kangaroo court process. There were 26 frivolous charges filed against Lula. He's, you know, been declared innocent of all of them. You know, there's no evidence in any of them except plea bargain test, coerced plea bargain testimonies. You know, so the chief prosecutor now is probably going to jail, Dalton Dalignol. And Sergio Moro may end up in jail as well, because not only were they acting illegally during the whole process, it looks like they've also been embezzling money and engaging, selling uh, prison sentence reductions, possibly, according to some, um, what some people are saying. And Dalton Dalagno, the chief prosecutor, has been convicted of skimming um, millions of reais off of overpriced travel expenses for the entire Lava Jato team. And he's, you know, he's facing, he's been ordered to pay back the money, but he's also facing possible jail time over that. Wow. Well, we thank you so much, Brian, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about major shifts in the U.S. COVID policy. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Margaret Flowers, co-founder of Popular Resistance and director of the Health Over Profit for Everyone campaign. Dr. Flowers, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be with you both. Absolutely. And Dr. Flowers, uh, reportedly, the Biden administration is planning to end uh, uh, the government's paying for COVID-19 shots and treatments uh, with plans to shift the pricing of control to uh, the companies and to the healthcare industry, which seems like it will mean uh, great profits for them. But it seems like it also means that uh, consumers or, you know, which is to say people who actually need these shots and this 
treatment will have to shoulder these costs. And I was hoping you could tell us more about this and what do you see as the potential impacts? Sure. Well, I think, you know, this is another part of the ongoing public health disaster when it comes to the response to the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States. And it's not surprising that, you know, a Democratic administration would do this. It was, you know, Biden was part of the Obama administration that gave us the health care law in 2010 that further privatized and monopolized and consolidated our health care system in the hands of the profiteers. So this is just another step in that, you know, and it was interesting. I think there was a spokesperson from the Department of Health and Human Services that said, well, we all knew that this was going to go back into the private sector at some point. Well, of course, because who's, you know, who are the voices that really have, you know, power on, on the Hill and in, with this administration? It's those corporate voices. So what this means is that, you know, when the pandemic began, one of the good things that the U.S. government did at the federal level was to create these programs where uh, these vaccination programs so that they could get the vaccines out quickly, buy them in bulk so they wouldn't be very expensive. In fact, the federal government financed much much of the research that went into making these vaccines. And so it really should have had, you know, we could have easily just nationalized these vaccines, the production of them, and then it would never have gone into private hands. Uh, but instead, the pharmaceutical companies made quite a bit of money from the government purchasing those vaccines. Um, we saw earlier this year that Congress could not even renew a little bit of funding to continue these vaccination and testing and treatment programs. So now that's running out. And so now basically the Department of Health and Human Services is meeting with the corporations and the public health departments to lay out a plan so that people will now have to purchase the vaccines uh, and or, you know, their insurance companies will have to they'll have to pay for the, the medications. Uh, this means that the prices are going to go up. It means that it will likely be used as a reason by the health insurance corporations to raise their premiums on people. So this is going to affect really literally everybody, whether you want the vaccine or you get COVID-19 or not. If you're if you have private health insurance, you could face increases in premiums. It means that the disparities that we're seeing in terms of access to medications and vaccines, we're seeing tremendous rates disparities and access to these as well as in outcomes with poorer outcomes in black and brown and indigenous communities. Um, it means all of this is going to worsen. And it just, um, you know, it, 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 to me, it's so infuriating, but not surprising that, you know, we continue to, be, to see Congress give millions and hundreds of millions of dollars to foment war and conflict in Ukraine. But Meanwhile, at home, just continuing to cut and cut important programs and shift the burden more and more onto people who are already suffering from economic you know, insecurity and, and the inflation that's going on. And, you know, Dr. Flowers, this is kind of like the I guess the tail end of the administration's response to the original variants of COVID-19. But the fact that the administration's response, uh, the overall response was so haphazard and, uh, you know, a, a patchwork response, more variants emerged. So so this means that there really literally is no coverage for people who uh, will be susceptible to these other emerging variants because there's literally no more money in the federal government or at least they're not allocating any more money. They're, the federal government is not spending any more money to address the ongoing 
uh, uh, emergence of variants of that that came from the original COVID nineteen pandemic. Right, that's a very important point. I'm glad you raised that because we continue to have very high rates of transmission here in the United States, uh, despite you know we're not seeing the testing that we were seeing before. Um, we're continuing to see high numbers of daily new daily cases in the U.S. and and people are thinking that this is being significantly undercounted. Um, and when you have that type of transmission, we are we have a setting here in the United States for a new major variant um, to be created. And what we've seen with these new variants, even with the Omicron, is that they're considered by public health experts and epidemiologists to be hyper-infectious. You know, this is a term that I don't remember ever hearing before the COVID-19 pandemic. They are so infectious. It takes very little uh, to, to infect somebody. And they're finding ways, as viruses do, to evade the immune responses and make the vaccines uh, less effective. And remember, these vaccines were, you know, cobbled together extremely quickly. I was shocked that, you know, we were even able to get vaccines. Um, they don't work perfectly, but they have been somewhat protective in preventing serious disease in people. But, you know, so we're not even really being fully protected, you know, from the vaccines that we have. And now we're setting up the scenario for our worst variants. And as you said, no real centralized federal capacity to monitor what's going on and invest in making sure that we're developing what we need to protect the population. It's, you know, it, it is, it's, it's basically, and we see it in the media, you know, people have just kind of thrown up their hands in the failures of the U.S. to address this and are just kind of giving in. And it's really sad to see as we go into another fall and winter and likely, you know, potential for more surges. Yeah. And at the same time, this is happening, Dr. Flowers. I mean, we've also seen the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, basically just, I mean, remove uh, all uh, substantive uh, preventative uh, measures and uh, suggestions as it pertains to the uh, uh, coronavirus. I mean, I feel like the message that we get on a number of levels as it concerns COVID-19 in the United States is that like we're literally on their own. And so is that we're literally on our own in the sense that not only are we um, not only are we being uh, advised to basically forget and, and reject some of the basic um, safety precautions that have become a part um, of the culture in the time since the onset of the pandemic, we're also being told from the highest levels of government and so-called leadership that basically, if we want to continue to be protected from the coronavirus, we're going to have to pay, which, uh, of course, is a part and parcel of uh, the broader sort of for-profit healthcare system that we have in the United States. And so, in a way, doctor, it, it actually feels like we're living in the logical conclusion of this country's uh, response to the coronavirus pandemic in the sense that really we've been abandoned uh, throughout this process all this time. And now this uh, issue of uh, basically being on our own just seems more blatant and stark than it has been before. Yeah, you know, and that's just um, being on our own is, is, is what our healthcare system, because, you know, of all the wealthy nations in the world, we are the only wealthy nation that doesn't have some sort of universal publicly funded or supported healthcare system. You know, in, in every other wealthy country, people get sick. They don't worry about whether they can afford care. They don't worry about losing their home, you know, if they need to get health care. But in the United States, we've been on our own for decades now. And that's something that, you know, we've been fighting against and fighting for a national publicly funded health, you know, program in the U.S. Uh, because 
when people have experienced some sort of serious accident or illness, they are literally on their own, whether they're uninsured or uninsured, because insurance in this country is, is not protected. So this is just, you know, more of what we're seeing and, and just in general, you know, in, in what I consider the United States to be a failed state because it can't provide for the basic needs of its people. And one thing that people should recognize, which is a very important point in this whole thing of what Biden is doing, is that because the COVID va- vaccines are considered to be, you know, they got this a special authorization through the uh, Food and Drug Administration of being authorized under an experimental program, our systems like Medicare and Medicaid are not going to cover them. So our most vulnerable populations, those who are elderly and those who are poor and people have chronic diseases, their insurances are not going to cover these vaccines. And so they are going to be the sacrificed people in this move to further bolster corporate profit. And, you know, this is all coming, uh, this news is all coming at uh, the time when Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is being, you know, celebrated for whatever he did during the COVID-19, uh, uh, the height of the pandemic, is retiring. And and I feel like uh, his retirement and the announcement that, you know, the government is not going to provide any more uh, support for what's left of the administration's uh, vaccine or or COVID-19 policy and just leave us to this capitalist system comes uh, on the realization that the vaccine policy, which is it was the only policy of this administration, really has not been a success in this country. Uh, And so I'm wondering how you see Fauci's uh, role in pushing vaccines only as a policy for uh, the response to COVID-19 in this country, how that played a role in really setting up the capitalist uh, exploitation of uh, the vaccine policy and not doing much else to protect people, um, and and how you just see that you know his role in creating this this kind of mess that we continue to be in. Yeah, right. You know, it's interesting because when Biden came in, remember, there was all this big hoopla about the fact that they were going to go with the science and he created this COVID-19 task force, which was going to create a response and really address the the problem. And, and what it turned out was that the folks on that task force, I remember there's one doctor in particular, I don't remember his name, who was actually pushing for what would be the public health measures that were needed to address the pandemic. And he was very quickly silenced. And I think that throughout this, uh, Fauci has uh, also, you know, I, I don't know, put his career first over the needs of other people. I'm not sure what was going on behind the scenes there, but we really needed a strong person who could stand up and say what was needed to be said. And we just didn't see that from anybody, you know, in in either the Trump administration or the, the Biden administration. And, you know, in fact, things have eroded worse under the Biden administration than they were under Trump, at least under Trump, you know, we got some programs. Instead, we're seeing those programs canceled under the, the Biden administration. And and uh, this has been a problem with public health and the way that our healthcare system is designed, because I know I've talked to public health experts at Johns Hopkins and, and other places, and, and they all know what needs to be done. But nobody's really willing to stand up and, you know, fight for what needs to be done. They're all like, well, you know, in the best possible world, we would be doing this, but no, we don't live in that possible world. And 
This is why, you know, it's so important that people not accept these and that at every level we need to be seeing people having the courage to fight back for what we need. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, the masses of people have to be that element that's going to stand up and say that there actually is a better world that's possible and we can make it, but we have to to, to fight for it. And so, I mean, as ever, Dr. Flowers, it's just clear that there has to be a, a militant organized movement that's dedicated to really bringing about the kind of uh, health care system and more broadly, uh, the kind of uh, social, political and economic system that will not only uh, give us the kind of health care that we need and deserve but also uh, uh, helps to build the kind of society uh, that we need to where, you know, when these uh, things inevitably happen, that not only is a society prepared, but we're equipped with the things to give people the support that they need. Right. You know, it's not like we uh, don't know what the answers are. I mean, I think the majority of people in the United States support most of the solutions that we need to address the real crises that we face. If we look Around the world, we see social movements organizing and coming together and taking strong action and winning. And, you know, we can do that here in the United States as well. I I think Latin American countries certainly have a lot to teach us about how to organize and fight back and create, you know, positive alternatives that address the needs of people. I think looking at, you know, the United Kingdom right now and what's going on there with the growing strike waves and campaigns pushing back for fair wages, for taxing the rich, for making housing affordable, all of these things that people need, you know, lowering the cost of food. Uh, People are rising up around the world, and, and that's what we can and should be doing in the United States as well. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Flowers, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there but move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, August 24th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary here in Washington. D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.Mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. 
D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Jared Ball. Oh man, just uh. <laughs> what happened? No, I messed around. What'd you do with Doctor Ball? Nothing. I just uh, I didn't have my uh, script in front of me, so y'all get a live blooper there. We are very happy to be joined today by Doctor Jared Ball, a father, husband, professor of Africana Studies at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland, the curator of IMixWhatLike.org, and the author of the book The Myths and Propaganda of Black Buying Power. Doctor Ball, thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Peace to you, Jackie, and everybody in the audience. Absolutely. The pleasure is all ours, Dr. Ball. And the reason why I didn't have my script up there a moment ago is because I was actually reading uh, your most recent article that you uh, published entitled Cryptoganda Cryptoganda rebrands the elaborate conspiracy of black capitalism. And this was something that was originally published, I believe, in uh, Propaganda and Focus also can be found on imixwhatilike.org. And I really appreciated this piece, Dr. Ball, because I feel like it it takes the conversation around cryptocurrencies to, to places where, I mean, it typically doesn't go. I mean, the, the, the narratives we typically hear are, you know, is it good? Is it bad? Is it fake? Is it real? Will you get rich off of it? Will you not get rich off of it? But you take a sort of really deep dive, uh, not only into the sort of uh, a broader political and even historical context about why cryptocurrency and why cryptoganda um, is necessary, but specifically the way that cryptoganda is weaponized towards black people. And you define cryptoganda in the piece as the application of existing models of propaganda to the crypto world. And there's a lot that I think is bound up in this, uh, Dr. Ball, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to sort of for- further break down the uh, concept of cryptoganda and why why is it deployed towards black people in the way that it is? Uh, again, I appreciate that. Uh, so the short of it is it's, it, it, it is an extension of, as this will eventually become a, uh, in a different version, uh, a chapter in the forthcoming second edition of the Buying Power uh, book argument, uh, which is ultimately that that what we that uh, black communities uh, in the United States in particular, or have been targeted with a brand of psychological warfare or propaganda that has been meant to encourage that black people move away from struggles for political power. And again, I do not mean voting for Democrats or Republicans. I mean the power to define phenomena and have it act in a desired manner. Shout out to uh, Huey Newton in Black August. Uh, for that definition, but that is controlling resources, and 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 the, the subtitle of the piece being uh, rebranding the elaborate conspiracy is a, is a shout out to uh, our recently and dearly departed Dr. James Turner, uh, the the founder, original founder of the uh, Africana Studies and Research Center at Cornell, where I had the pleasure of studying briefly uh, some twenty years ago. 
but what he called the elaborate conspiracy of keeping black people away from controlling land, resources, wealth creation, wealth definition, wealth redistribution. So for a long time, black people have been targeted internally as an internally as an internal colony, the way the world has been targeted with a, a U.S.-led uh, attempt to redefine the world under the under its own definitions of democracy and capitalism and white supremacy. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the version directed at black people has just been, uh, again, um, specifically develop a form of black capitalism, black entrepreneurialism. Don't worry about politics. Get your money right. Then you can get into the political world, et cetera, and so forth, all of which is an intentionally designed game uh, that can never be won. So the, the, the version that, that I've been trying to pay attention to over the last years or more uh, of as it's applied to the, the world of crypto that is including cryptocurrency, NFTs, blockchain, and et cetera, uh, is, is, is just a new version of that same messaging. Uh, it's been called new and exciting and revolutionary. Um, and uh, just as has been the case over the last 50, 60, 100 years, uh, with with all other forms of technology and political change in the world, all of which seems to exclude black people actually having real political power. So ultimately, and then I'll just stop here for now, is is um, I, I, the way I approach everything is where is the, the, the political power and ultimately wealth redistribution in whatever we're talking about? And uh, when I don't find it, I do start to get a little concerned. So when everybody was talking about crypto and promoting and still is promoting crypto and Bitcoin, et cetera, and so forth, and NFTs even are still somehow getting promoted despite their entire, you know, ridiculousness and collapse. I just don't see any anywhere where there's redistribution of wealth. All I see are allusions to political power or economic strength or symbolic references to other forms of of power, uh, but none of which is 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 the kind of political power that 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 I'm talking about that I that others have been talking about for a long time and that that I think you know we we need. Yeah, and in your piece, you mentioned a uh, white paper that I had, you know, actually never heard of, and I'm glad you uh, uh, noted it because I guess it it is sort of a canon in the Bitcoin uh, universe. Satoshi uh, Nakamoto uh, and the Bitcoin white paper, um, and you point out marked revolutionary breaks with conventional economic activity and organization, but you also point out that. Uh, as you just said, you know, nothing in this white paper and the the mythology around uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general does anything to address uh, redistribution of wealth. But you make another point that I, I'm hoping you can kind of expand on a little bit. And, and you say that these uh, uh, resources don't describe what happens to the overwhelming majority of the wretched once Bitcoin becomes the adopted dominant currency, creating immediately an even more oligarchic, more exploitative, more irrational and more inhuman uh, wasteland where we're somehow more beholden to our crypto overlords. I mean, there are, you know, governments in some countries that should not be. <laughs> transferring 
their currencies to cryptocurrency. And they have done that. And I think we are seeing the result of what you just said happening. So I'm I'm hoping you can expand a little bit more on this idea that, you know, cryptocurrency has also not explained what happens to poor people when Bitcoin <laughs> becomes king, right? Shout out to, to, to Dr. Turner, because one of the things he taught us was that, as in his own example, was you if you start with the frame or a lens uh, coming from the the poorest, the uh, and, and specifically the black and poorest, uh, the worldview changes. Uh, so from that lens, it's 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 evident that so-called adoption of uh, cryptocurrency in certain countries and even cities in this country uh, and around the world uh, hasn't led to any sort of. Uh, Wealth transfer, uh, political power shift hasn't done anything to 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 even culturally in in a, uh, some large or su- substantial way redefine the world or reshape the world or re reimage the world. Uh, it, what has it, so so that's just one thing that's just evident uh, as a starting point. But what what going back to where you started. Jackie, with the the question of the white paper, uh, one of the first things that that people have been had always been saying to me when I raised an eyebrow about all of this was, well, you haven't read the white paper, you haven't read Nakamoto's you know statement, da 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 da. So of course I did. It's eight or nine pages. It's got a lot of technical jargon about how the blockchain will work and how Bitcoin as a as a currency on top of that blockchain will function, and that it makes statements allusions to what. I think are fantasy about circumventing government and circumventing surveillance and circumventing banks, et cetera. And really what a long, longer story short, and there's a lot I didn't say in this piece about Nakamoto that, that has been said elsewhere and should be, you know, still restated about who is this person? Uh, is this person in fact, NSA or CIA is, is, you know, is this, per, you know, what, what, you know, uh, and also, but I think more importantly about the the context of the white paper coming after the collapse of the 2008 uh, uh, stock market, where investors were looking for new tools and mechanisms to use to promote investment or the fleecing of investors uh, to boost whatever value, uh, you know, whatever stock that they had uh, control over. And because people had been investing in blockchain and cryptocurrency well before 2008, there were these this pool of very wealthy investors who needed a new group of for lack of a better way of putting it, suckers to get involved to boost the value of what they had, which is why, again, as I started to look at and pay attention to, there's as much accumulation in ownership of Bitcoin. Uh, and as I said in this in, 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 in my article, there's I just looked it up again. Ninety three percent of Bitcoin are in three percent of wallets. So, you know, there's 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 consolidation of mining. There's 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 a consolidation of ownership of of platform exchanges. Uh, so when they're talking about let's replace banks, well, now you have a, a handful full of exchanges that dominate 
the landscape and are themselves, which I didn't even get into in this piece, being investigated now uh, for fraud and so on and so forth. So and and offering no consumer protection that that not again, especially among us having this discussion to somehow want to make banks look good. But there is still some consumer protection with banks. There are still legal uh, and 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 other consumer protections and and uh, 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 accountabilities that that can be imposed on banks that cannot be imposed on exchanges or 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 mining operations or independent individual uh, uh, traders uh, or or sellers or buyers of crypto et cetera and so forth so um uh, all of the promises that were even ill-defined in Nakamoto's initial paper have never been developed upon in terms of answering the questions I was raising. So the only thing that ends up occurring is is that when whether it's through a, a sort of nominal adoption of, of of currency in a city or by an entire country. Uh, or uh, uh, um, more promotion or discussion online or via a lot of the podcasts that I ended up talking about in this piece, uh, what, what these investors are looking for is just more exchange, which boosts the market capitalization, which boosts the stock value of what they have, uh, uh, and the only which is the only way to make any value of what what they're selling because there's no product, there's no there's no service, there's nothing being offered to the world. Uh, other than the promise that what you are investing in today will become of greater value later, and that's just a Ponzi scheme. That's just a hustle, or a, you know, the, another version of a greater fool theory thing. That is again specific to my point, being imposed on Black people through a messaging and a narrative that says this is your revolutionary opportunity. This is, you know, never mind the the the, the Black business and entrepreneurialism and investment of before that has proven been proven over and over again to have failed. Uh, to collectively advance the community. Now we have something new that we can get in that, uh, and ultimately all the, all that they're doing is rebranding black capitalism, which is again, uh, ultimately to my point, just another attempt to rebrand capitalism and imperialism and, and in specific to this case, black uh, colonization and oppression. Yeah, definitely. And you know, it always blows my mind whenever I read about crypto and particularly about this uh, Satoshi Nakamoto character, because as you know, like we just quite literally don't know who this person or persons is like this is the figure who literally sort of gave uh, uh, or, you know, um, supposedly invented cryptocurrency as we understand it. And we don't know if that's their real name. We don't know if it's a person or a group of people. We don't know what they look like. We don't know where they are on planet Earth. We don't know if they're living or dead. And so that to me is like a huge red flag to the very beginning. I can't even really tell you who the person is that, uh, you know, I guess descended from heaven to hand you and I this revolutionary thing that's really going to shake up the system or whatever. And, you know, what your piece really drives home, Dr. Ball, is that cryptoganda, it, it really, it, it sells a dream. That is, at the end of the day, all it really is, is just selling a dream of this supposedly subversive thing that isn't actually subverting anything, but is in turn actually recreating the same sort of exploitative dynamic already present within the capitalist uh, uh, economy. And 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 in and, and the last part of your comments there, you, you touched on the, the colonial character 
of cryptoganda. And I was hoping you could get deeper into that and the impact it's designed to have on internally colonized people like black folks in this country. Yeah. And then I also have to uh, specific answer the specific last part of, of Jackie's uh, question about what happens if Bitcoin is adopted uh, as currency, uh, which would then really expose that internal colonial uh, character, because as I said, as again, as I said, if if ninety three percent of Bitcoin is uh, in three percent of wallets, and then Bitcoin somehow becomes the dominant currency, none of us have any. Uh, overwhelmingly, none of us have any. And even those who claim to invest, I mean, going back to even Hill Harper's messaging, a uh, very prominent messaging of he wants black people, every black household to to have, uh, I forgot the exact number, but a whole bunch of Satoshis, which is, I think, one one millionth of a, of a, of a, of a Bitcoin. It's just the small, small sliver of, a, of an actual coin, since the coins themselves, even as they're, they're you know, plunging in value, are still, you know, costing, you know, somewhere around $20,000 per coin, which nobody has. So, the point I'm getting at is if, if this becomes the currency, then we're, we become even poorer than we are now, if you can imagine that. We become even you know, more desperate uh, uh, than, 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 uh, than we are now. We have even less Bitcoin than we have money. And by 2053, black wealth is said to be headed to zero. So, and that's in U.S. dollars. <laughs> so, what the hell is that? I mean, I can't think of how inverse and negative the, the balance sheet looks when we're talking about crypto. And then the idea that we're going to take this this near zero wealth in U.S. dollars and turn that into Bitcoin wealth, which, of course, requires the purchasing of Bitcoin in some sort of established fiat currency. I mean, again, it just doesn't make any sense. I can't find anybody that can make it make sense, even as I've, I've put myself out there for ridicule and debate. Uh, it's nobody still has has convinced me or or I think demonstrated at all that that this can can uh, somehow, again, uh, solve the problem of wealth redistribution and poverty. Uh, so, but the, the the colonial nature is simply that, and particularly, you know, my focus in this case, sort of being uh, 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 media studies and, and propaganda and psychological warfare. But as 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 again, they have said, and they, you know, Levine's book details this, Surveillance Valley, and uh, other sources that are now escaping my mind that that, that I cite in this piece and elsewhere uh, ha- have talked about this. But the point being. That that the state that is the 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 power structure of the United States has has for a long time looked at black people in the United States in the exact same way it looks at people it is conquering uh, uh, and colonizing external to the United States. So they bring in the same very counterinsurgency techniques that they have developed for targeting people in Vietnam and elsewhere it, back here to the United States, uh, specifically to target black people. And this is largely involved uh, psychological warfare, propaganda, uh, what has also been euphemized as uh, mass communication, entertainment, branding, marketing, strategic communication, et cetera. Uh, all of this has been turned towards black people uh, uh, who have been defined even as early reports in, in the, the original journalism of the day reporting on Nat Turner's rebellion, calling him and his comrades insurgents 
they have been literally referring and considering black people here as a counterinsurgency threat since before uh, uh, this put even really before this country existed as a country, and certainly before it became anything uh, akin to a democracy, at least nominally so, said to be you know for black people. So, so you know, and my point really is, as I've always done in my work, is is try to uh, I've always appreciated the internal colonialism theory or my version of it, uh, it, it, it in application to black into theorizing the condition of black people here. Uh, uh, and there has been a long tradition of that, again, which includes George Jackson, shout out again to him in Black August, uh, you know, who have who have said we as black people or black people in the United States have to understand their condition as you as any colonized community uh, would understand its co- uh, condition re- in relationship to to the state. Uh, and then that changes the discussion in terms of everything from from voting to organizing to to uh, wh- how we define power, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, so ultimately, that's what I'm pointing towards in, in, in my work. But just really just but but and just simply trying to start with this this basic, which and again, I'll stop here. But Daruba bin Wahad keeps saying to us that we are we are refighting battles that we had previously won. Uh, so, so when previously for decades, black people and others had discarded black capitalism, even conservative economists, black conservative economists have said black capitalism is fantasy, uh, and we're refighting it again, rebranded as, as, as cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. Uh, um, you know, we, we had already won arguments over black business and entrepreneurialism as a solution. And we're having to do it all over again, uh, led in part by a new push through cryptoganda uh, and, and even something I didn't get into in this piece, but but have covered elsewhere, the, 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 the way that cryptoganda paves the way for the establishment of more and encourages more black entrepreneurialism and black business creation as a solution to these political problems. Uh, and, and that is, of course, part of the, the, the con. That's the hustle. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Dr. Jared Ball. And Dr. Ball, I wanted to ask you as well about the role of celebrities in uh, crypto-ganda. Now, uh, you know, I I think it was basically several months ago. It it seemed like we saw like a wave of celebrity advertisements um, as it pertains to uh, cryptocurrency, which I think was perhaps 
um, an indication that maybe things weren't going well in that way. But I think a part of that was definitely targeted towards uh, black people. And we had folks like uh, Spike Lee and LeBron James, uh, you know, doing their commercials for crypto and things like that. And Jackie even let me know about this event called InvestFest. Which, uh, for frankly exorbitant uh, ticket fees, you could come and you know hear different people talk about a number of issues, you know, like crypto, uh, stocks, marketing, estate planning, insurance, taxes, real estate, how to get money from the government, and who are the three headliners of InvestFest, which was early this month. It was Steve Harvey of Mustache fame. Uh, Miami rapper Rick Ross, a former corrections officer, named himself after a Los Angeles drug lord, although I do enjoy his music, I can't lie. And Charlemagne the God, one of the co-hosts of the popular Breakfast Club radio show who also published a book called Black Privilege. So those are your (laughs) headliners here. And there's uh, a host of of other folks uh, who I'm not quite as familiar with. Now, I suppose, to be fair, I don't know if those three were actually talking about uh, crypto or just generally talking about, I don't know how you got to get on your grind or whatever, but even still, it's clear that uh, they're put up to sort of bring in uh, masses of people as recognizable names. And so uh, really my question is what, what is the role of celebrities in cryptoganda in terms of trying to uh, uh, entice people in this case, specifically black people, because everybody, you know, at this festival uh, was black by all appearances. And there absolutely is like a black crypto community. There's a black blockchain community. You know what I mean? And so and when, and I think particularly when we look at the culture of celebrity worship uh, in this country and how that that's always sort of a, uh, um, uh, a, a viable way to, to sell something. But, you know, I'll shut up, doctor, because I'm definitely uh, curious of how you see the way that, you know, celebrity is weaponized in this way. I mean, it's really always the same in that uh, uh, so it, it's more symbolism and, and marketing uh, and promotion of the message. I mean, it's really, that's all it is. And and to your point, no, from what I've seen, uh, I haven't heard and seen everything. And of course I couldn't afford in, in probably three lifetimes, a ticket to the, to invest fest. But, uh, from what I did see in, in, in uh, of the discussion, the, you know, uh, Rick Ross and Charlemagne and Steve Harvey are all promoting pathways to wealth that none of them took to achieve theirs, <laughs> which is true. Right. The first thing that I think is funny that, that, they're telling everybody to invest and get your portfolio together and work hard. And as you say, get on your grind. And sometimes it's crypto. Sometimes it's real estate. Sometimes it's it's something else. Uh, but but the point is, they're not telling you that they got lucky in comedy and radio and music. Uh, they're one of a handful of people to make it in their respective industries. And now as a sort of second life or a second a uh, 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 pathway to or to to revenue generation. They've taken paid endorsements uh, uh, of black capitalism initially, but of course capitalism more broadly. So, and to your point of, of uh, to another one of your points is that the the target audience with InvestFest is clearly black, but but there are uh, overt 
involved there is an overt involvement of 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 a, of, a, of a handful of whites including the the current owner of Chick-fil-A uh wow. the very progressive and radical and redistributionist <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> entity uh that that even chooses to stay closed on Sunday so that it can uphold the the socialist principles of Jesus um you know like like you know that's that's involved uh but indirectly as I talk a little bit about in this piece and should probably talk more about uh, uh, later on, uh, are all the, the, the white investment uh, backers and white uh, funders uh, of, of these entities and, 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 and endeavors uh, that are promoted to black audiences as black autonomy and liberation. Uh, that's that's the other part. And by the way, that's another part of the the colonial or neo-colonial uh, relationship. I mean, you know, uh, writ large in other countries, obviously, it's it's uh, Western powers endorsing uh, locally developed leadership. Uh, it's the same thing happening here with Black America. Uh, you know, so uh, uh, that's really the role of celebrity. And I'll, and I'll stop here at least for now, and just by saying that again, you know, I, I think it's a, my little. Um, I guess aphorism is is still applicable that you can't be rich, famous, and radically political all at the same time. There are no exceptions to the rule. At any point that one person achieves that that sort of momentary status, one of the three or all of them are undercut, sometimes violently. Uh, and again, I'm unaware of any exception to this rule. So it's it's if you want if you want to sustain rich, uh, which by the way is also how you have to sustain celebrity, you have to re affirm or reconfirm yourself as valuable to investors, whether it's ad buyers, whether it's colonial state rulers in power uh, or, or, or otherwise. Uh, and to do that, you know, that this is part of the game. So so Steve Harvey, of course, uh, he didn't get rich hosting Family Feud, uh, uh, at least not initially. That was part of his reinvention as well. Uh, the next the next level is to reinvent himself as a spokesperson of capital, black, white or other. And again, what I always just want to end uh, really end on, you know, and come back to is that this is all meant to tell black people that you should not care about or focus on politics. Uh, you know, vote for the Democrat that's promoted to you every few years and then that's it. And when you get upset uh, uh, and when 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 you're abused or when you you know have a moment to get out in the street, it will come and remind you that black business has always been for you, been there for you, as Maggie Anderson famously and continues to do, and her husband continue to do, uh, and others continue to do, uh, and will remind you that uh, you know we got to get our money right and our business right before we get our politics together, and then we can deal with this, you know, all this police violence and oppression and inequality and da, 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 you know uh, uh, at that point and so on and so forth. This is all you know part of uh, again an intentional method of, of suppressing uh, potential colonial discontent. Yeah. And, you know, you're right. Dan T. Cathy, the CEO of uh, Chick-fil-A, was on the roster of InvestFest. So I guess, you know, one of the secrets to success is homophobia. Uh, there's also a cat here, uh, uh, Joshua Brown, who- Or just inheritance. To- 
Right. How about just inheritance? Yeah, that too. <laughs> that, that helps a lot. And then there's also this cat, Joshua Brown, who, according to CNBC, is co-founder and CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management, a New York City-based investment advisory firm managing over $2 billion for high net worth investors, corporate retirement plans, and foundations. So I'm, I actually just have like a lot of questions now about like what's even behind this. But, but Jackie Lukeman, <laughs> I wanted to bring you in here. You know, when you when you were talking about Steve Harvey, I thought you were going to say that he's famous for his clownishly large and way too many button suits. I mean, because they are ridiculous. And and I don't know who bought those things, but yeah, that, that was a part I guess. It looked like he did. But you know, we're talking we're having this conversation about, you know, the 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 repurposing of uh capitalist propaganda to black folks in regard to cryptocurrency and and things like invest best in the midst of a an economic political crisis that that we particularly need to pay attention to especially since the Biden administration announced you know their big old $10,000 federal student loan forgiveness and then $20,000 will be forgiven in uh federal student loans uh that are related to Pell grants but i mean i mean i i think it, it, it's been a couple of hours, maybe maybe an hour and a half since Biden made that announcement. And I'm already tired, Dr. Ball, of people on Twitter, on Facebook, people I know. Well, you know, it's something. It's better than nothing. And, and that just sounds like Stockholm syndrome to me. But I think this is how this propaganda works. You know, it's it's not kind of the overt messaging of of the 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 political class saying we're really going to let you people starve that's their they will never say that at least not the democrats right the republicans of course they will they'll say that the democrats wouldn't say that but it's the this little piecemeal stuff this not even a half measure quarter measure drop in the bucket you know throwing a cup of ice water on a forest fire stuff that the democrats are doing and and the response from the people who are the most insufficiently served by these measures is, well, it's something. It's better than nothing. And, and I mean, what, what are your thoughts on on his announcement, this, this student loan forgiveness plan? And yeah, just, just where we are right now in, in this political climate. So I'm going to frame it this way again uh, in tribute to Black August. But I had the I, and shout out to Black Men Build who hosted this conversation last night between uh, Ashanti Alston and Jihad Abdul Mumit, uh, uh, comrades in the Black Panther Party, Black Liberation Army, both of whom had spent many many years in prison as political prisoners. And Jihad said something that that. It's going to take me some time to get over, it, and especially the way he put it, the power that he brought with it that I cannot duplicate. But, but he, his point was that, yeah, a couple of political prisoners have gotten out recently, but as a condition of their release, they had to renounce their status as freedom fighters, had to acknowledge themselves as criminals, and basically apologize. And he said, in particular, Russell Maroon Schultz cried in front of the judge in stating that, which which he could not have believed in his heart, but he knew he had to say to, to spend at least five minutes outside the prison before he died. And he and Jihad made the point that Matulu Shakur is probably going to die in prison because he wouldn't do that. 
and this is not to criticize or condemn anybody who did it, but to point out that that as condition that really what Jihad was saying was that the condition of our movement is so weak that we're forcing these elders at the last, literally the last moments of their life to renounce everything they gave their life in favor of that 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 has not been upheld by the rest of us. And so when I hear you, you know, talking about the response on Twitter to Biden's nonsense, this is in part what I'm arguing is the the intended inertia that Fanon talked about that causes what we call apathy in our colonized communities. That all of this messaging about entrepreneurialism and black capitalism and you know, investing and getting your money right and financial literacy and and if we do that first and do ourselves this service first, then we can engage. That, you know, all of that messaging is what leads people to accepting what Malcolm called crumbs 50, 60 years ago off the table. We venerated Malcolm X for telling us not to accept crumbs. And here we are 50, 60 years later after his assassination. And people are saying, yeah, I want a couple of crumbs because it's it, because there's no other messaging reaching them. There's no other there's no other uh, uh, organized politic radicalizing them. Uh, to the point where they would say, no, these are crumbs. And in fact, not only do we not want these crumbs, we want an immediate release of our political prisoners without apology from them, at least an acknowledgement of the justifiable uh, 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 you know, nature of their actions, given what is still an ongoing set of oppressive conditions. But we can't even get that. We, we can't get that because every corner, everywhere we turn, And I literally just started my classes for this semester yesterday and already, literally in my first day of classes, confronted by students who are who are coming out of this ecosystem of Harvey and Charlemagne and Earn Your Leisure and all these other folks that I mentioned many more that I many more than I don't in this in this article. They're coming from this worldview basically telling me essentially, uh, uh, of course, how insane it must be to support George Jackson or to venerate Asada Shakur or Sophia Bukhari. Because wh- why would we do that? We, we have people making money. When I get this degree from Morgan, I'm going to be making money. I'm going to invest properly. My financial literacy will be up. I'm not going to have these problems that you all have and all had, et cetera, and so forth, because that's the ecosystem that, so, 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 you know, I do try to have some fun and, and make fun of it, but, but, but especially after hearing Jihad's commentary last night, I mean, it is incredibly serious what, what the, the, the ramifications of all this are in creating among us an acceptance of this nonsense. So I don't have anything else to say about Biden's crumbs. I mean, that, I mean, it's absurd that anyone would think that this is going to be helpful, that this is meaningful, and that we should accept this at all, because we should, we're should we starting at the far end of the spectrum, as again, Matulu is dying in prison, and others are rotting away, uh, and, and future political prisoners are being created. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means. 
means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Dr. Jared Ball is here. And Dr. Ball, we left off. You made a very uh, powerful point just before we went to the break. And I mean, to me, I think it just shows precisely why that kind of politic has to be uh, uh, avoided like the plague from the standpoint of uh, this capitalist system and the class that governs and why it behooves this system and that ruling class to uh, incline people away from it and also why it's necessary to propagandize the young people in the way that uh, uh, you were discussing that you're already experiencing in your classes, this whole, you know, uh, get that bag uh, mentality, which, you know, I think was maybe already present to an extent in a lot of uh, incoming college students, but I definitely think uh, has been amplified. It's just this, it's this thing about capitalism to where it, it can render your political imagination completely infertile. Because of the uh, duration and depth and incessant character of this propagandization, which takes place from uh, our uh, earliest memories. And I actually wanted to touch on this, this earn your leisure thing. Jackie was actually telling me about this a little earlier. And that's interesting because... You know, it, it reminds me of this other stuff that you see floating around, you know, generally social media, generally speaking, is where you see it. Like stuff like that, stuff like uh, uh, soft life or, or black luxury. It seems like every few months we get, here's that word, a rebranding of the same like petty bourgeois individualistic uh, self-indulgence. But the interesting thing about earn your leisure is that it combines that with this uh, uh, sort of a rugged individualistic bag that that this system is so uh, uh, heavy on. This idea that, you know, you shouldn't have leisure because you work, and at some point when you work, you got to stop working so you don't work yourself to death. No, you have to earn it, and if you don't have any leisure, it's just because you're not working hard enough because your material situation, your poverty, and all of that, all the things that you're missing, your lack of health care, all of that is because something is intrinsically wrong with you. And so that that just seems like it factors right in to this uh, uh, crypto-ganda piece. So don't fight for liberation, but earn your leisure, mm. you know, which in substance doesn't even really mean much uh, to my mind. But, but how do you see it, doctor? Well, first of all, not only are are both of you correct in that, but but what they're really saying is, I was joking earlier, is is or elsewhere, whatever, is is that that we're being told or asked or made to earn their leisure. That's what it is, because they're making millions of dollars chilling, uh, uh, presenting fantasy uh, to a subscriber base that 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 clearly doesn't know any better and doesn't have any money, uh, and uh, is looking for a solution. 
that that is packaged in a youthful fly i mean they got you know i mean i like the logo the assets over liabilities sweatshirts and all that kind of stuff i mean they got the you know what i mean like well, they, you gotta they, have a shirt they have <laughs> they got the swag they got the new york thing they got all these little cool little things about them they got the 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 uh the you know both of them i think were college athletes basketball football players whatever so they have you know a lot of the the uh, symbolic, uh, uh, conventional, um, you, you know, stylings that that particularly young black men, uh, which is I'm sure their their primary audience, but but by by extension, you know, black people want to see. I mean, people are attracted to that. Uh, and then they're coming with again, and again, they're not paving new ground. I mean, this is part of the points that I'm making that they're not paving new ground and pushing this narrative of black capitalism. They just have yet a new mechanism to do it through, which is this cryptocurrency stuff. Uh, uh, and of course that's, that's just being encouraged to reinvigorate the, the pumping of the brand. But, but at the risk of again, losing what are have to be, you know, the last remaining, uh, black points and credits. I have left uh, on my register. Uh, I don't want to earn their leisure or my leisure. I'm very much with 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 the the Marxist Paul Lafargue on this one. I, I have the right to be lazy. Uh, we have already put in the work. We have already contributed to the wealth that has been generated in this society just by working and living and paying our bills. Never mind ancestors, never mind all of that, where the bill is more than overpaid. But just in our own lives, those of us living right now, we have already done enough. Uh, so I don't think I need to earn any more of the leisure that I'm going to uh, you know, be stri striving for, uh, you know, however long I have left on this earth. Uh, you know, so, but, you know, it, it, what they're saying in Earn Your Leisure is, again, just a rebranding of that Protestant work ethic that you have to work hard so that you can play hard, et cetera, and so forth. But that's nonsense. Uh, we've already worked hard enough. The wealth has already been created. It's just not distributed properly. So, um, and that's what I'm always, again, looking for and never finding in any of these folks' arguments. Uh, and by the way, you know, I didn't really push this in, in this in this article, but but when I made reference to one of the debates that I had with these with the with with one of these uh, crypto gandists uh, uh, outlets, they admit the gentlemen of crypto admit at the end of the debate that they're not interested in the collective. They're not interested, as they said, in saving everybody or even saving the environment. He one of them explicitly said they don't even care about saving the planet. They're here to make money and whoever can get on the train, as they put it, can get on the train. Otherwise, you're going to get left behind. And again, that is not that's not the worldview that I'm working from and that I think uh, 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 any of us should be working from. And, uh, you know, if they would just simply stop uh, at times, at least um, wrapping themselves in the language and symbolism of black community and, and, and liberation, uh, I would have less of a problem with them. But that's but but that's what they and many of these other folks keep doing. That's and that's really um, what I'm saying is the biggest problem, because as you all both have pointed out, it, it it crushes our political aspirations. And that's why, you know, again, as Kwame Ture said, capitalism makes us think we're thinking when we're merely reacting to stimuli. Mm. And they're definitely uh, the stimuli. And, you know, a, a, a point or maybe an aside about the depth of this 
pro-capitalist, black capitalist propaganda among us. Someone in the by any means necessary chat yesterday, and shout out to y'all, pointed out that they were wearing their freshly delivered Black Power Media t-shirt, BPM t-shirt. I have one. It's fantastic. I love it. And someone, some random person rolled up on them, Dr. Ball, and I know this is going to please you a great deal, rolled up (laughs) on them and said, what does that mean, Black professional men? And the person uh, uh, in the chat was like, I, I just I just didn't know what to say. And I just groaned mm. myself like, man, that is just some deep propaganda right there where you see three letters. And, uh, you know, on a T-shirt and, and, and it's a part of a market, you know, marketing and you automatically you go to some weird capitalist, black capitalist kind of. ugh, But. <laughs> You know, I thought that was a good example of the depth of the propaganda that we're talking about, especially when, you know, the same government, once again, throws three billion extra dollars, more dollars that they claim they don't have to do anything else with for us at Ukraine. Now, you know who doesn't have to earn their leisure? Leisure? Volodymyr Zelensky. That's who. (laughs) He doesn't have to earn anything. All he has to do is get in front of his little green screen and, and, and pretend to cry that, you know, the Russians are killing all the Ukrainians and, and when it's actually the Ukrainians committing a whole bunch of war crimes. But that's a different story for another day. But I mean, th- there's no there's no problem with the Biden administration giving Ukraine all the money it wants, not even needs, wants to continue this forever war in Ukraine, proxy war in Ukraine against Russia, but we got to earn our leisure, Dr. Ball. <laughs> right. That's, I mean, well, well, at the risk of, because, because, because I just noticed on Twitter that, 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 uh, um, I didn't realize that, but Twitter is telling me that I'm currently involved in, in Russia state affiliated media. So at the bum, risk bum, of bum. making it worse, <laughs> Bum, bum, bum. Right. Right. It's like, damn. It's like, yeah, you didn't tell me you, you tricked me. I didn't I didn't realize what I was roped into. But but I mean, but look, all I'll say is, is it's a dangerous narrative that Biden is is maybe paradoxically or unintentionally pushing by telling people that the only way to get money is to be willing uh, uh, to 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 pick up arms in, in a hopeless attempt against an imperial aggressor. Uh, you know, like like is, is that the message that that's being said? Because, you know, maybe there are other groups that might want to start applying. Uh, but, but the, you know, but obviously the point I mean, it's obviously just more of the ridiculousness. If you want to, uh, again, as Kwame Ture said, if you want to end poverty, just give poor people money <laughs> and they clearly have an endless amount of it. Uh, but they just seem to only have it when it comes to supporting someone else killing someone else uh and uh, uh so no I, I i yeah anyway it's it's yeah and you it's know, somewhat mad yeah in, in our last few minutes dr ball another thing i was just thinking about there's just this whiff of almost like a prosperity gospel around a uh, crypto that um uh, uh i i kind of feel like is the vibe you get when we see so much of this stuff like they it's almost portrayed as this salvific sort of thing and i feel like th- th- this happens in in black america every so often there's some 
product or some idea or some person who's, you know, positioning themselves as the savior of black folks. This is the thing that's going to finally free us from the chains of white supremacy. But somehow it's never anything that fundamentally challenges the institutions and systems like capitalism out of which our oppression grows. You know what I mean? And so Mm. it uh, it's just sort of wild to see um, whole communities spring up around these ideas um, and honestly, I'm not even sure if they're really f- framed as subversive. I mean, I suppose they are in a way, but in substance, all it really means is sort of feeding into a different version of the same thing we've been dealing with for centuries. And so, I mean, the only thing I can really say is, as we often do and by any means necessary, is to raise the importance of a uh, political education and real uh, grassroots organizing um, to sort of show people that the contradictions emerge out of the system itself. And so no amount of consumption and no amount of entrepreneurialism is going to solve that. It's that the system itself that has to be challenged through political struggle, which is the very thing that Cryptoganda uh, 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 inclines them away from. Yeah, that's really it. I mean, it's, it's it, again, as I keep saying, it's just a rebranding of, of, of black capitalism, which was itself uh, a euphemism for uh, continued black oppression. Uh, so the, the, you know, we just saw, we were talking about this morning, the, the, the new commercials from, from city featuring the, the brother from Atlanta. I can't remember his name. The one who plays the, the rapper on Atlanta, uh, um, uh, no, 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 oh, the, no, the, the other one cat, who plays the paper boy, the, 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 the paper boy. he yeah. plays paper boy. Uh, and I like him a lot as an actor, but it's just unfortunate to see his talents, you know, used to tell to 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 not only rebrand the history of Black Wall Street, but to say that that new Black Wall Streets will emerge with support and investment from Citigroup uh, and and or Citibank. And, you know, like this is exactly I mean, in, in a 30 second commercial, that's exactly the, it, it perfectly summarizes what I'm talking about and what we've been talking about. Uh, which is this this idea that that um, black liberation will be symbolized and promoted via black people, uh, all of which is supported by white advertising algorithms, investors, private equity groups, and so on, uh, all with the ultimate goal of of not making money per se, because black people don't have the kind of money and don't generate the kind of wealth even for others at this point um, that that uh, that certainly city would need. But but uh, uh, but what they do need is the quiet and calm political context to continue to do their work. Uh, so that's really where the value of those kinds of commercials come in. Uh, you know, they can, you know, they write it off on their balance sheet as uh, support for Black Lives Matter, um, probably using the cost of that commercial towards the, the 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 50 billion that were promised by corporations or whatever the total was to to Black Lives Matter related uh, entities. Um, most of which, as it said at the time, was for to support black entrepreneurialism and investment. So this likely would actually fit within that. Uh, and, and, and then, you know, and then black people will consciously or not see those images and hear that messaging and accept it as real or, or accept it as the only option, uh, even if it doesn't seem as real as 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 it made to others. Uh, but never will they be encouraged towards the political education that you and we have been been encouraging. Uh, and that's, again, the problem. 
Absolutely. And uh, uh, the brother's name who plays Paperboy, that's Brian Tyree Henry. And it actually blows my mind about how like the narrative of Black Wall Street in Tulsa. I mean, it seems like it's shifted away from this gruesome act of of white supremacist terror into man wasn't it nice when there were just blocks and blocks of black businesses like it's just it's just like this weird sort of skewing of, of the historical narrative and what the real uh, uh sort of substance of that is i mean first of all there were multiple black wall streets in the u.s and it wasn't this like idyllic utopian thing i mean that was like the necessity of living under white supremacy you know what i'm saying and that was not a separate economy it, it's, you know, so it all stems, I think, like so many things do, from a fundamental misunderstanding of how the capitalist system itself operates, which is why you and I as movement people have to organize a movement to not only make that clear, but to overturn this system that bedevils us all. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Dr. Jared Ball, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.